John 11, 45 through 57. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, What are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest of the year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You're not considering that this is your advantage, that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should have reported it so that they could arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. Don't leave. Both services, huh? I told Max first service not to leave, and I said, now I need you to preach, and he had a little bit of a panic attack. Uh, He knows now that's not happening. Uh, Max, everyone is dying to know, what happened at Youthquake this year? Uh, Lots of no sleeping nights, very cold weather, Mm -hmm. hiking a mountain, Mm -hmm. that's always something, Um, (laughs) rafting, broke two paddles. Nice. Going for the record next year of five. Um, Hearing the great I am in the mountains, and getting to hear the I Am statements preached every night. That's awesome. Good job, bud. Thank you. Um, Max is, Morgan, as Morgan said, Max is one of our students who uh, we're very proud of. We have a lot of great um, high school students at this church. We have a lot of great high school students who've come from this church and are now sponsors of Youthquake. Um, you know, why do we do something like Youthquake? cost a lot of money, <laughs> took a lot of time. There were about 14,000 miles driven, over 19 vehicles, 49 adults taking off work, 173 people from Stillwater having to be fed. Why do we do something like that? Um, raise your hand if you are an adult who came to faith later in life and you wish you could have come to faith earlier in life. I hear that story a lot. The reason we do things like Youthquake is so that people can encounter the living God, hear the gospel, and respond in faith. The reason we have a youth ministry is not so you can go drop your kids off at the door and leave the Jesus stuff to someone else. The reason we do a youth ministry is so that students can come and hear the gospel of Jesus and learn what it means to follow him for the rest of their life. I wish I would have taken the advice of people like Paul and Drew and others at a younger age to make Jesus the center of my life, to make him my everything, my king and my God. That's why we do stuff like this. Youthquake was a great time. Yes, we had a lot of fun doing the things that we do up there, but mostly because the gospel was preached, people responded, and lives were changed. We'll see for how long, but hopefully forever. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. Um, Today, we're going to be looking at the back half of John chapter 11. 
Actually, we talked about John chapter 11 I pre- on the night I preached about the life, the resurrection, and the coming death, and the reality that the, nothing matters after death except for where you stand with Jesus. And tonight, this morning, we're going to be looking at the fallout from that. And I want you to have this idea in the back of your mind, that what people intend for harm, God alone can use for good. Let's open up our text and look at John chapter 11. Verses 45 through 48. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, What are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place. In our nation. First thing I want to highlight from this text that there's sometimes nothing you can do to change people's minds about Jesus. Okay, think about what just happened. These people saw a dead guy raised after four days. That this guy, Jesus, said, Lazarus, come out, and he did. A dead person obeyed the words of another guy. And some believed. But others did not. The reality is, brothers and sisters, that sometimes there is nothing you can do to change people's minds about Jesus. I don't know what that does for you. For me, I'm a pretty, this is a confession, by the way, don't, uh, I'm a pretty controlling person, by the way. If you, if you know me, you're like, yeah, I just spent a week with you. It's exhausting. Um, and I don't like the fact that I can't like turn the right dial, press the right button, say the right thing, do the right thing to make everyone I talk to believe in Jesus. That bothers me. If I could just say it the right way, say it enough times, at the right time, maybe I can get everyone I talk to, everyone I encounter to hear and respond in faith to the good news of Jesus. Jesus himself came, lived perfectly, taught perfectly, had impeccable timing. He did not sin. He did miracles. And people saw the miracles. They saw somebody raised from the dead and come out of the tomb, and they still did not believe. Sometimes in this life, there's nothing you can do to get people to change their mind on Jesus. It reminds me of the parable of the sower, where we're reminded that our job is to scatter the seed of the gospel, knowing that it's going to fall on rocky paths sometimes, knowing that weeds sometimes are going to choke it out, knowing that the temptations of the world are going to come and pluck this thing out, but that sometimes, sometimes it will lead to people responding in a life of faithfulness. But not every time. Our job is not to control people coming to faith because we can't. Only God, only the Spirit working in someone's life can make the seed grow. But we've got to be faithful. Faithful to continue to share the seed of the gospel with those who need it, knowing that sometimes there's nothing we can do to change the minds of people about Jesus. Second thing I think we see from this text is that God's plan is frightening. God's plan can be scary. Um, I know we like to dog on the people in the gospels who don't get Jesus. It's easy from this side of time to dog on those people. But if we're gracious and we're patient and we're understanding for just a moment and put ourselves in their shoes, uh, we might have a different understanding. 
at least be able to understand where they're coming from. These people kind of had a way of life. They had a position, they knew kind of the routine, and Jesus was coming and shaking all of that up. And I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people who do not like change of any kind, let alone Jesus coming and turning the world upside down. They were scared to lose their place in society, to have everything they understood shaken. They were worried that the Romans, okay, the Romans were going to come and displace them, either from their roles or from their bodies and their heads. You you know, the Romans keep the peace at the end of the sword. They, They didn't want some Messiah figure coming and getting all the people riled up and then the Romans coming and taking their lives, taking their families, taking their jobs. They were scared. But the reality is what was going on in this story was, in fact, God's plan. It's what God wanted to do. It's what happened. And it was scary, but the reality is that doesn't change the fact that they should have seen Jesus. The reality is it wasn't that Jesus did anything wrong or said anything wrong. It is that they didn't want him. They were scared. I think... If we are honest in here, we at times can experience God's plan, experience God's word, and be scared. Scared of what it's going to cost us. Jesus himself says that I have come, and because I have come, families are going to get split up. Some of you in your family, your, your household, some of you are going to go with me and some of you are not. And those that go with me, you may get kicked out of your house. Jesus himself says, I was persecuted. And if you follow me, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to be persecuted. It may cost you your job. It may cost you wealth and success. It may cost you time and energy. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you your very life. But Jesus says in Revelation 2, verse 10, if you're faithful, even to the point of death, I will give you the crown of life. Sometimes God's plan is frightening. Sometimes it's scary. But it is the only chance we have at life now and forever. Let's look back at the text, starting in verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that the one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He didn't say this of his own. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. He stayed there with the disciples. The next thing that I think we see from this text is that sometimes our actions have the opposite effect we intend for them to have. Sometimes the things we say, the things we do, have the opposite effect that we intended for them to have. You ever played with one of those like Chinese finger traps? The harder you pull, the more stuck you get. It's kind of like that. You would think that you're intending to get your fingers apart, but it's just not working. You keep trying and trying, and it's making it worse and worse. Um, many years ago, you 
probably heard the story many times. Um, the Japanese army attacked Pearl Harbor, and they caught that base by surprise. Many, many people died. Um, the reality is that probably had an opposite effect that the effect that the Japanese army intended for half. Reality is it woke America up and initiated them into this war. And by the end of it, I think that had an opposite effect than they intended. You read through the book of Acts and you encounter story after story after story of people intending one thing and another thing happening. Um, early on in the gospel, you see that um, Peter and others are thrown into prison. And then, miraculously, they're released. And it only confirms what the message that they're saying. It only makes the people more um, optimistic and more bold in hearing this message and beginning to believe this message. You see Stephen, as he gets up to preach this great sermon, and he's killed. What they're trying to do is snuff out Jesus, to snuff out the message of the church. They kill him, and Paul, the Saul, seems to be okay with this. He's there applauding what's going on. What they're trying to do is snuff out Jesus. But instead, it starts this persecution that causes the Christians to be sent out to go to different places across the known world. They tried to silence him, and they ended up taking, sending the message out throughout more places. It didn't have the effect they intended. And you see Saul himself being one who wants to destroy the church. He encounters Jesus, and then he begins to plant and build the church. You see Paul in prison later on and this jailer wanting to uh, kill himself potentially because he knows that Paul is, is going to get out and, and things don't go well. If he gets out, he's a Roman soldier. This isn't good. Paul says, don't. Me and Silas are here. We want you to hear the gospel. Guess what he does? He and his entire household, they respond in faith. They try to imprison him, to silence him, to get him to stop. And he ends up converting this jailer in his whole household. Sometimes, the things we do, the things we say, have the opposite effect of our original intention. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing because it helps us understand that we have a sovereign God who is in control over all things, not me, not you, not us. And let's look at this text again, starting in verse 55. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves for the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The, Pharisee, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. Next thing that I think we see is that sometimes the things we are looking for can only be found in Jesus. Uh, these people every year would go to Jerusalem to have their sins forgiven, both individually, communally, corporately. It was what God told them to do. They were trying to be faithful to what God told them to do, to remember this Passover that happened so long ago in Egypt. And this festival was meant to be a time to remember who God was and how he had delivered him and how he is the only source of forgiveness. But what they didn't see is that what they were looking for, purification from sin and Jesus, were meant to be tied together. 
The irony that John uses here is something that he employs throughout his gospel that we've talked about before. The irony is they're looking for Jesus, wondering where he's at, and they're looking for purification for sins, and the reality is those things are meant to be one and the same. When you look for purification for sins, you're going to be led to Jesus because Jesus alone can take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats was never meant to be a permanent solution to sin. Actually, what we needed was a great and perfect high priest and a great and perfect sacrifice together in one. God in the flesh coming to this earth, living a sinless life and dying willingly on a cross in our place for our sins. Both the sins in the past, the sins now, and the sins that have yet even been committed. That's what we needed. And that's what Jesus came to do. Sometimes the things that we're looking for can only be found in Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've spent a lot of my life looking for value, looking for identity about who I am. What's my place in this world? What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? We're always looking under every rock, around every corner for for peace. Many of us have lives of turmoil. There's just deep brokenness inside of us and our thoughts and our desires. And many of us know the things that we've said and that we've done, and we know we are guilty of these things. We feel shame for some of these things. And the reality is, the only solution is Jesus. Only Jesus can offer forgiveness where there was once shame and guilt. Only Jesus can be bring peace, perfect peace. Only Jesus can bring broken people like me and you and make us whole. Only Jesus can remind us of who we are and why we're here, that we are blessed children created in the image of God, meant to represent God in the world so that people see us and they're directed to him. They hear the things that we say, they see the things that we do, and they are led into a recognition of who God is and what he intended for them. That our purpose here is to be proclaimers of the gospel. No matter what job we have, no matter where we're from, no matter what our family life is like, God has made us in his image. He saved us through his son, and now he wants us to carry that message to our families, to our town, to our country, and to the rest of the world. Only Jesus is the answer to all the things we're looking for, to who we are, to why we're here the brokenness in our life. This text, we already said, the main idea from this text is that what people intend for harm, God alone can use for good. These people, I think they were doing what they thought they were supposed to be doing. You know, I just saw Jesus resurrect this guy from the dead, and they keep telling us he's not the Messiah, but I, I need them to know that he just resurrected a guy from the dead. That's like a, a pretty big deal. And these chief priests and these Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, has to gather because they know the things they're doing to try to stop Jesus and to stop people from following him are not working. They're nervous. They're scared. They don't know what to do, so they take it to the next level up. Surely those religious leaders, surely those people who know the Bible so well will know what to do. And then the Sanhedrin comes together, they air their grievances, and Caiaphas, the high priest, says, 
Let's make this a Roman versus Jesus problem, not a Roman versus the Jews problem. He says it's better for one man to die than for the entire nation to die. What he's saying is something political. He's He's being pretty smart, pretty savvy actually. Okay, if we make this a Jews versus Romans problem, we're going to die and we're going to have our place taken away. So let's, let's be smart about this. Let's, let's be wise about this. Let's make this a Romans versus Jesus problem. Let's, let's put Jesus before them as this rogue Messiah who we don't trust, who we don't agree with, and let's let the Romans kill him. What Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and all those hard-hearted people who saw and heard the things that Jesus was doing, what they were intending was harm. They wanted to silence Jesus. They wanted to snuff out his movement. But what people intend for harm, God alone can use for good. Think about Joseph in Genesis, chapters 45, chapter 50. Joseph was this son, this interesting, different, special son of Jacob. And I don't know if you have a sibling that is the favorite sibling in a family, uh, but that can lead to some bitterness, depending on how mom and dad handle that. And Jacob actually treated this son quite differently, and his brothers did not like it at all. Eventually, they grew so tired that they were thinking about killing him. What they end up doing is throwing him into a pit, to selling him into slavery. So Joseph gets shipped off. He's not with his family anymore. He's lost his security. He's lost his place. He's lost his family. And he's in Egypt, and the Lord blesses him. He, he starts becoming a, a well-known servant in a household. And then one day, somebody powerful accuses him of something that he didn't do. He's thrown in jail. He's there for quite a while. I'm sure he wondered if God was still there, God was still listening to him, if God knew what was going on. Then one day he had the opportunity to interpret a dream for Pharaoh, the most important person in Egypt. And Pharaoh, liking what he said, makes him number two in the entire land, a foreigner, number two in all of Egypt. And Joseph eventually realizes why he's there. This great famine was coming and it was gonna wipe people out. If people didn't have a way to provide for themselves, to eat, they would die. And he knew, I'm here so that I can help provide food for my people, so that God's plan can continue forward, so that God's promises to Adam and Eve will not be forgotten, so that God's promises to Abraham will not be forgotten. That from this family that Joseph was a part of would come the one who would crush the head of the snake, would come the one through whom the whole world would be blessed. And God had a plan. Even though it was scary, even though Joseph couldn't see it, even though his brothers meant harm. Listen to these verses from Genesis chapter 45. Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here. This is Joseph talking to his brothers. Because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring the present result the survival of many people. Do you hear it? 
Do you hear the gospel there spoken by the words of Joseph? Do you hear it? What you planned for harm, God alone intends for good. In light of the cross, we can look back on our difficult circumstances, on our painful experiences with hope. All throughout the story of the Bible, people choose one thing when God wanted another. And yet, because God is over all of it, because he's sovereign, because he's powerful, because he's transcendent, because he's good, because he is an imminent God, he moves and even uses and even ordains some difficult things, some hard and painful things. Joseph at any time could have cursed God. Job at any time could have cursed God and died. Many disciples did turn their backs on Jesus as they began to recognize more of who he is. They didn't want him. The reality of the Bible is that only in light of the cross can we look back and see the difficult circumstances of our lives with hope. When we were at Youthquake this week, and one of the weird things that I like to do is to uh, join small groups of our guys, but not with them knowing. So I will sneak behind them in the shadows of the dark and just listen. And listen. And usually, many, I try to stay quiet, I really do, but then somebody will say something and I need to say something. Uh, and so I, one of these nights I was sitting behind um, one of our boys' groups and um, was just listening to them process a sermon. And some profound things were said, not surprisingly. We have so many great families here. We have so many faithful young men and women in our church. I'm so thankful for so many of you adults who have spent time getting to know them. But as these boys were processing, uh, one of the boys was talking about how God used death in his family to bring life. He tells a story about how he has two brothers, one living and one dead. And that from that death, from that difficult circumstances, that painful experience, his parents heard the gospel. They responded in faith. They joined a church. Their life was changed. Their two living sons began to follow Jesus. One of their sons invited another friend to church and heard the gospel and responded in faith. God took death, pain, difficulty, and brought life. Another student was discussing his family and his mother going through an almost deathly experience. And, and you know, most people in that kind of a situation would question God. God, if you're so powerful, if you're so good, how could you do this to my mother? She's a good woman, a faithful woman. How could you do this? That's how most of us would respond. It's how I'd probably respond. But as this young man was reflecting, he just kept talking about the impact of his parents' faith during that moment had on him, had on their family. That through this difficult circumstance that could have led to some really frustrating moments, did lead to some really painful moments, questions, frustrations, I'm sure, as he looks back on that experience, he said this, that God allows us to go through tough times to make our faith stronger. The young man about to lose his mother, thinking he might lose his mother, looks back and thinks, 
man, from that difficulty, brought our family together with each other, with the Lord. And my faith grew because of it. Only in light of the cross can we look back on our difficult circumstances with hope. Uh, I want to close out today by just reading a couple of verses that remind us of this thing. That God is in control. That God sees you. That he knows you. He knows the brokenness you're experiencing. The pain you're experiencing. The frustration. The confusion he, you may have. But he wants you to know that only in him can you find what you're looking for. First text is John chapter 1. James chapter 1. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now we have this treasure in jars of clay, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And since we have this same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore we speak. For we know that the one who raised Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as grace extends, extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase for the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. In light of the painful experiences we have, in light of the difficult circumstances we're in, we do not give up because we know the resurrection and the life, the only one who can satisfy even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory so that we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In just a moment, there'll be a couple of questions on the screen for us to reflect on. Do I trust the God who alone can make hard, difficult, painful things good?